0: Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com
1: slash four keys and download your free copy. Think of something that really matters to you that might be overwhelming and just ask, how am I making this harder than it needs to be? That's it. That's, that's like a magic question. Because all that overcomplication, all that overengineering, the overthinking, overexertion, all that over is actually going to get in your way, and, and it's because you're sort of caught in this old paradigm, this old mindset, and there is an alternative mindset, and, and that mindset is summarized in that one word, effortless." That's what I mean by the word. There's a, there's a different path, an, an easier, simpler, lighter smarter approach and you've got to learn how to find those and search for them uh, because they are key to breakthrough contribution without burning out.
0: I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who started movements, built thriving businesses, written best selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500 episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. Greg, welcome to The Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us.
1: It's so great to be with you. Thank you.
0: Yeah, so you're actually here for a second time, which says a whole hell of a lot about uh, you know, your first appearance. Uh, you know, we had you when Well, I think long after Essentialism was published, which is probably one of my favorite books. In fact, it's one of those books I think I keep within arm's reach all the time uh, because I thought the concepts were so vital to being productive in the world. And you have a new book out called Effortless, which we will talk about in great detail. But before we get into that, uh, last time I asked you what your parents did for a living and how that influenced you, Uh, this time I want to start by asking you, what is one or two of of the most important things that you learned from one or both of your parents that influenced and shaped who you've become and what you've ended up doing with your life.
1: Um, just talking to my, my dad just a couple of days ago and he summarized something that I've watched him do all my life. And he's, he he had the phrase and it was like, my job every day is to try to observe, then serve and uplift. Mm. That was like the mantra and the way it's manifest for him is quite you know unique as he is but as he's driving down the street he'll always notice if someone's pulled over he'll always observe if someone seems to have uh you know some car problem and and he knows how to fix cars he's you know he's he's capable in that way And but it's not just the capability; it's the awareness. And he'll he'll pull over. And I've seen I've seen him do that so many times, and it continues to be uh, a frequent. You know, I I would be surprised if it's not every week or multiple times a week even. And you know, sometimes he can't help them, but sometimes, most of the time, he can. And that there's something in that very simple um, orientation. Um, that that is portable and relevant to me and the idea of, you know, first observe, then serve. I think that of the two elements, my observation would be that people are more willing to do the second than the fourth. But as a yeah. result of that, they actually serve less than they're willing to uh, Mm. and and are less effective in their service and contribution to others. And so I think in that first principle of like first observe, you could go quite deep in understanding that at one level, it's just an awareness that you're not so focused on the things right in front of you. You don't Mm. notice people, but it can go much beyond that where you start to listen deeply and care about people and and understand what really is going on for them so that you can serve them in a highly effective way. So that's one principle that's relevant right now that I've learned from my father.
2: Mm.
0: Why do you think it is that more people aren't like that in, you know, the modern world? Because I think that, you know, one, the observed part makes sense that people are not very observant given that they move at like lightning pace and they're drowning in a sea of, you know, information from every source imaginable. Uh, But then the other component of this is that, you know, people often act out of self-interest and I, you know, I'm I'm writing this like massive article on, you know, what it takes to build an audience in 2021 and beyond. And uh, one of the central themes of that article is that it has nothing to do with you. Nobody gives a damn about you. It's about what they want and what they need, but so many people are driven by self-interest.
2: well,
1: i mean i can I can riff on that a second with you. I mean, uh, I think it's it's pretty much the the distinctive quality about what it means to be a professional in any field is your ability to observe deeply and precisely uh, the needs and wants and unspoken needs and unspoken wants of the other. And so, you know, if you go to the doctors and they don't take any time to diagnose you, how much will you trust, uh, trust the prescription? Uh, if you, if you take your car into a, into a garage and, and, and you don't trust that they have understood properly what's going on with your car, how like they are you to want to pay for what they're suggesting, you know, like it doesn't matter what field you're in. That's the distinguishing quality. How well can you identify precisely, uh, what, what is actually going on and what, what the need is. And so I think that it is a bit of a paradox because to, to get somebody who is themselves self-interested to recognize why it is in their self-interest, to understand precisely what's in other a people's self-interest, yeah. you know, like it, it's, it is a, a mindset shift to recognize, to wake up and go, oh, maybe I've lived with an in, independent mindset. Mm -hmm. in an interdependent reality. Wow. That's a, that's a, that's a big, I mean, that's a big problem and a big opportunity. Uh We've lived our whole lives as if it's like what I want, what I need to do, what I'm trying to achieve. And, 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 and I think that you can, that will, that approach will take you a certain distance, you know, just determination about what you want, just go after it. But what, what, What got you here won't get you there. So it's a big transition if you want to really move to, let's say, a 10x level of contribution and impact and influence. I mean, then it's all about your ability to understand others and to be able to put into words what they want. The the, the great author is someone who who doesn't begin with their own mind in mind, but begins with the reader's mind in mind. And that they see and understand and feel what that reader is experiencing and feeling.
0: It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember, folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips.
1: Big difference.
0: Mm, What role do you think that um, sort of the prevalence of social media, you know, the internet, personal brands, all this stuff has played uh, in you know our inability to observe. Because I think that we, we were talking about Adam Smith before we officially hit record here. Um, and one of the things he says in the book, uh, in The Wealth of Nations, is that it's self-interest is the engine of prosperity, which there is definitely a grain of truth to that. If we didn't have self-interest, people would just sit on their asses and not do anything all day. But then you kind of have the issue of self-interest pushed to the point of diminishing returns, which I think we started to see the consequences of that, uh, you know, from organizational levels, you know, to individual levels and in politics and, you know, damn near every other area, area of, of sort of the way society functions. To your point, people are largely driven by an independent mindset in an interdependent reality.
1: Yeah, I mean, look, the, the wealth of nations – the, that principle of self-interest driving you know the the um, the invisible hand of the market is is you know is is an accurate idea but it comes with uh with an assumption that that life is has a certain amount of virtue necessary that that you that you know, you, you, you know, the, the great entrepreneur is still going to be the person who can anticipate the needs and desires of the customer better than they can. So it's not just, it is an oversimplification yeah. even of, uh, you know, even of, of, of the wealth nations and his thinking, which of course is an oversimplification of the, how, the complexity of the world. But to <laughs> say that it's only that, you know, it's yeah. like, it's more like that principle. And I know you're saying this, I know you're in support of it. It's just, it, it's, it's a little bit like that classic, you know, quintessential idea in in how to win friends and influence people where he says, you know, you can achieve more by way of becoming interesting in conversation by being interested yeah. than in trying to get other people to be interested in you. And I, mean, I think he t- says it more like, you know, you, you, you'll achieve more in 30 minutes than you will in, in years of trying, if you shift that strategy. You know, people will be, say, oh, he's such a great conversationalist because he's so interested in me. Uh, that's what they really are experiencing. And so similarly, you know, if we want to, if we really want, uh, I mean, all the things we really want are on the other side of an interdependent mindset. Everything. You, you, want, you want meaning? You have to understand people that you're going to serve. There's no meaning outside of people and relationships. All purpose starts with service. All purpose starts with somebody else that you want to make a difference to, born or unborn. Uh, if if you, want, you want money, well, you have to figure out what other people want. You aren't going to make it just because you happen to want wealth. Uh, you, you want love. You've got to understand what the people around you need so you can meet those needs so that they can feel love themselves and love in return and, and so on and so on. I mean, there's just nothing that you want that you can actually sustainably get uh, without understanding the interdependent reality. And that sort of relationship mindset, uh, I think, changes everything. And in some ways, I think it shifts essentialism. as like essentialism 1.0 and essentialism 2.0. Uh, Essentialism mm-hmm. 1.0 is where you say, "Hey, what's essential to you?" Right? You know, okay, think about that. So, if you don't prioritize your life, someone else will. And it's the you know, you don't want to give up your your right to think independently and for yourself, and so on. And 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 there's there is a case to be made for that because you don't want to live, you know, in a dependently where you're or in a codependent relationship with people. So there is a shift. That's necessary here to, to take responsibility for prioritization. But 2.0 is where you start to go. Okay, I, I think I know what is essential for me. What my, what what my objectives are. But what if I could discover what everybody else's disproportionately important, vital things are to them? They'll be different to the ones that are for me. They, they they're going to be as unique as that person is. And if you can identify that precisely, then then the world the world is yours. Uh because because um Zlao Tzu put it something like people are easy to move if you have what they want. Uh and and suddenly you will know what people want precisely. And then you can give a very small a small amount of service in a in the precisely essential thing that somebody else wants can feel for them like a massive deposit. It's like it's like somehow investing a dollar and getting a thousand dollars of value in the person that you're serving. Now think of what that will that 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 the difference is. I'll give you one final metaphor on this. I mean, just think of the times that you have you have given a gift to someone and you could tell once they received it, it just they didn't want it. It isn't they just didn't you know like it isn't what they really would have liked to have. Or vice versa. Think of a time when you 've received a gift, maybe it was expensive, and it 's not at all what you wanted, and how awful that moment is to not be known to not to feel alone more alone than if they hadn't given it to you and that 's what 's happening all the time in interactions with other people is that that we uh, are you know that people feel more lonely in our interactions together, if you can do something about that, if you can be the one in a thousand who actually knows people, what they want and what they need and precisely what's essential to them. Uh, it changes everything.
2: Yeah.
0: Yeah. So to go back to that whole idea of self-interest as the engine of prosperity, you made a really important point, which is the role that context plays, uh, which is something that just has become more and more apparent to me over the, the better part of this last year is that, you know, context is incredibly important when it comes to prescriptive advice. Uh, of any kind, and yet, I think particularly in the self-help world, or you know, in the world that you and I live in, people have a tendency to ignore context. Uh, you know, the example I always come back to is is you know, people sell an online course or something like that. Like, oh, you know, I did this, this, and this, and you know, uh, buy my course, you'll get my results. It's like, wait a minute, like there are all these variables that the person buying the course can't replicate that the person selling it happens to have as major advantages. Yes. Um, <clears throat> like, for example, yeah. if I started a podcasting course, right, I started 10 years before this thing became a massive cultural trend. There are a lot of very lucky variables, unless somebody has a time machine that they could never replicate in my story.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a it's absolutely right. Um, it there's certainly, you know, the, the word one of the words that comes to mind as you're sharing that is just relevancy. Uh, you know, if, if if there's so much irrelevant sales copy, there's so much irrelevant content in the world. There's so much irrelevant posts. There's so many irrelevant things that people are saying, and 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 of course that's waste for everybody involved. Right? Irrelevance means that the person sharing is going to be ignored, and the person receiving feels you know that it was a waste of their time too. It was useless. So that's the you know that's the 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 failed market of ideas. Yeah. If you know what we're trying to do <clears throat> is to find what it is that they really what what is it I have uniquely that they uniquely want and need, and I think again the the biggest error is is not just not even taking the time to identify, you know. Who am I writing to? Who is this for, really? Not just a word, well, people age this to this, you know, not just a, a demographic, but like what's going on in their world? What's mm. their pain? What's their felt pain right now? What's the complexity of their life? What do they want, really? What's a tangible promise that has relevance right now that will stop them in their tracks and their busy lives? Oh, yes, I need this, an almost physical reaction. Uh, that's what you're trying to do. I mean, certainly... Certainly, I, I, I think in I mean, I think in the work that I'm trying to do in, in writing, I'm I am looking whether I'm successful or not is, you know, to be determined. But uh, but it's to try to work out where, you know, where is somebody at right now and, and therefore which ideas have the most power of relevancy? uh that that's uh to me the connected tissue that the many many of the books that are published just i think that's really what they fail in they do, they're they not failing whether they write about something that is good or something that is true most i think books that are written are true or good in some way and but they they just aren't they they just have not bridged the gap to make to make sure that the way they're writing it is 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 highly relevant to the person reading.
0: Yeah. Well, um, speaking of relevance, I think that that makes a, a perfect segue into talking about uh, effortless, in particular. So, you know, it's been a while since you published Essentialism, right? Probably the better part of like six years, if I remember correctly.
1: Yeah. So well, amazing, really, when you think about it, how quickly it all goes. <laughs> yeah.
0: Yeah. I mean, you know, I was very, very thrilled when I saw that you had a new book out. I think I ordered it the second I saw it was on Amazon. I was like, oh, Greg McKeown has a new book out. Essentialism was fantastic. So how is, you know, what is it that led to this book and, you know, why this and, you know, how did you end up, you know, deciding on this as the next sort of natural follow up to essentialism? (laughs)
1: Well, I mean, let me answer that in two ways, if you don't mind. Let me let me answer it with first the uh, given what we've just talked about why I think this has relevance for people right now, and then I, I'm happy to share sort of my backstory to it as well. The the you know the the why I think this is relevant for other people is that it's sort of two questions. Yeah. Everybody listening to this, uh, you know, if I if I if we had them all, if we were all together in a room, and I say to all of you together, if I say, okay, put your hands up, if you would like to get better results, even ten x results, right? Ten times better. Um, yeah, that's every hand's going to go up. Now, if I ask a second question, if I say, okay, by a show of hands, how many of you can work ten x harder? <laughs> You're going to have either no hands or sort of one or two hands, and 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 I, you know, then the, the book's not for them, right? Like if you can work ten times harder. Well, you're going to have a lot of value by working a little harder. You will get yeah. better results. You work a bit harder. You get that. that's great. I'm at virtue. Hard work is a virtue. Problem is, it's just not. It's just not infinitely scalable. Principle. If you want to get ten times better results, you, you you either you have sort of one of two paths ahead of you. Either you can't do it, so you give up. So now you've got essential things you'd really like to achieve contributions you really like to make and you just go, no, that's not possible. That's one option. Second option is that you say, well, the only way to do it is work harder, even though I can't work any harder, so I'll try anyway. And then that's a recipe for burnout. And and broadly speaking, I think that the second path is what people choose to do. Uh, Maybe they jump back and forth between the two in a kind of boom and bust execution strategy. Okay, I'll push harder, but I can't do it. I'm exhausted. I'm burned out. And then they don't for a while, and then they try again when they 're inspired to do it by someone or some circumstance uh, and, and and I think broadly speaking, there are probably only two kinds of people in the world right now. you know there are people who are burned out, and there are people who know they are burned out and, <laughs> and so so that's like that's like you know, that 's sort of a setup of the problem. And, and now let me just share, you know, before I get to the solution, let me just share sort of the, the backstory story for why I personally came to this. And, uh, you know, it's a multifaceted um, experience, right? One thing, essentialism became a big success, so you know, traveling with that. Uh, in addition to being, you know, what you might say, the father of essentialism, I now am the father of four children, so there's all the responsibilities with that. I'm being more selective than I've ever been, but I still found myself just uh you know running out of space i want to make a higher contribution just as i've just described for others that they feel as i felt it too but there's no more space there's not 10x i can't work 10x harder and then in the midst of that we have a family emergency where one of my daughters um she she became she went from sort of a picture of health uh outgoing vivacious um funny can't even stay mad, always climbing trees, running barefoot everywhere, naming our chickens uh yeah yeah, we somehow we have chickens and and all of that to then suddenly a a massive decline inexplicably in her in her health her uh mental capacities uh, sort of imagine a parkinson's disease type symptoms. Uh, we're visiting lots of neurologists and nobody can even give us the faintest idea of why all the tests are coming back in the normal range. And this is going on for several, several months. And, uh, and and so, you know, once you suddenly add that to something that already there's no space in it, well, I found myself in the position that I just described. Do you Do you give up on what's essential? Do you burn yourself out trying to pursue what's essential? Or what? And fortunately, I mean, it came through this exquisite, you know, uh, challenge, a trial, but what came of it was was a very clear understanding that there was an alternative path. No. Uh, that, there, you know, when you can't work harder, or, or let's say it differently, actually, it when you're facing the hardest, most important challenges of your life, don't make it harder than it needs to be. You know, There may be things that are making life. In fact, that's a good question just to put to people listening to this. It's like think of something that really matters to you that might be overwhelming and just ask, how am I making this harder than it needs to be? That's it. That's, that's like a magic question. Because all that overcomplication, all that over-engineering, the overthinking, over-exertion, all that over is actually going to get in your way, and, and it's because you're sort of caught in this old paradigm, this old mindset, and there is an alternative mindset, and, and that mindset is summarized in that one word, effortless." That's what I mean by the word. There's a, there's a different path, an, an easier, simpler, lighter smarter approach. And you've got to learn how to find those and search for them uh, because they are key to breakthrough contribution without burning out.
2: Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer.
0: Yeah, you. Know, it's kind of funny. Uh, it reminds me of a story which I may have shared on on the show before. Uh, I had a, a friend. This was you know back in the early probably two thousands, maybe late late nineties. This is when you know streaming to the internet wasn't as common as it is to, today. And he was working at Oracle as an MIT engineer, really really smart guy. Uh, you know, I like go over to his house and like, what are you working on? He's like, well, he was, I think he worked uh, on RFID technology and he had figured out that he said, you know, I'm trying to basically, uh, set up my computer so that, uh, you know, when I'm watching movies that I've downloaded, I can watch them on my TV without having to go back into the bedroom where the computer is at. So I'm building this RF remote and, you know, spending all this time and I looked at him and I was like, why don't you just use a wireless mouse? And he looked at me he was like, "Yeah, I guess I could do that
1: huh <laughs> well exactly in 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 tiny and big ways uh we we can apply the question i was um yeah. I was working with somebody who's a classic quintessential over overachiever she's the kind of person who um you know, she's up till four in the morning photoshopping for her church youth activity the next day. No one's expecting her asking that from her. But that's just sort of how she thinks if I'm going to make it, you know, if I want to be, if I want to serve more, I, if I want to serve at a higher level, I must sacrifice more and more, more sleep, more of me. She feels guilty if she even eats lunch. And I said, look, you've got to invert the me- the, the mindset. You know, everything you've learned just about, about performance and achievement has got you to this point. But in order to go to the whole next level, you've got to unlearn it all, invert the whole thing. The next time someone asks you to do something, don't say, well, how can I, you know, well, I won't say not not to ask. Ask, how can I make this simpler, easier? How can I, how am I making this harder than it needs to be? So she gets a call. She works at a, a university. Jessica from a professor. says, oh, "I would like you to record my, uh, you know, video my class um, this semester." And she is just ready, wired to to jump in this, you know, two feet in. I'm going to wow him. Um, what that meant to her was, "Well, we'll get my whole team there, a team of videographers. We'll have different camera people. We'll have we'll edit it together. Uh, we'll, you know, all this." Uh, and, and music, intros and outros, we'll have graphics. I mean, we're just going to make it, you know, special. And then she remembers, well, how am I making this more complicated, more difficult, harder than it needs to be? And so she, she pauses on that for a moment. She, she asks him, okay, well, tell me a little more about this. Like, who is this actually for? And what would, a, what would it done look like for this, you know, for, for, for you? And, well, it turns out that this is for one student who's going to miss a few classes. Because of an athletic commitment, so the solution they come up with is that someone else in the class will just record it on you know just on a, on a on the iPhone and just send it to him wherever he's going to miss and that's it that's the whole solution ten minute phone yeah. call saves four months for an entire team. she can hardly believe it That that's when she sort of became converted to this idea of invert, ask a different question, look out of the different mindset the the, the the There's a Puritan ethic within it many of us that says. Not only that hard work is a virtue, but that ease is to be distrusted. And when when we distrust it, what we're doing now, sometimes easy is wrong. I mean, I'm not saying always easy is the right, virtuous, good, solid path. But if we say it always is, that it means that all of those strategies, tools, options, tactics, you know, that would make something simpler and easier, we just are like, well, we don't even look at those. We don't examine them, explore them. What a massive strategic error of judgment. And so I'm just trying to say, look, look, add it to the range. She wasn't even, she would never have discovered it without asking a different question. Uh, Invert the question. That's one of the most practical things we can do to start moving into this effortless uh, mindset.
0: So, you know, I, I wonder what role, um, our sort of media narratives play in all of this. And we had Justine Musk's uh, here, Elon's ex-wife. And I think one of the things that you see, right, is when people see people like Elon, they think, oh, uh, if he works 120 hours a week, I should do the same. And then I'm going to become him. You know, again, we go back to context. Um, And I think the thing that really struck me out of all the things she said is that people don't see the amount of work that goes into these kinds of accomplishments. She's like, it's an extreme way of living. And often, uh, you know, comes at the cost of a lot of other things in your life. And I don't think a lot of people are aware of the reality of that. Um, and then, you know, I think, I think when Michael Shine here was, still, was like Gary Vee is out telling people tweet from the toilet 200 times a day, you know? Uh, so like, how do you begin to sort of unwind from, you know, this cultural narrative that we perpetuate uh, through iconic figures, because they're the ones who have books written about them. They're the ones on the covers of magazines. They're the ones who are giving TED talks.
1: Yeah, um, the well, the a lot of this is wrong. <laughs> uh, it's um, just because something makes it as a media story, uh, doesn't make it accurate. Doesn't make it the true narrative. Uh, in fact, the, there's tremendous bias that that is difficult to overcome um, because you don't write a story about someone who's just steadily working today, you know, is working yeah. on something today and working on it tomorrow. It's not a story. There's no story to tell. And yet, in many of the stories that eventually do get told, that's actually the backstory. You know, so so that doesn't get covered in the story because you only become aware of somebody when suddenly something happens. And most progress is slowly, then suddenly. And so so even where even where someone's story was about steady and effortless pace of continual steadiness over time, uh, that that isn't going to get told. Uh, You know, you want the dramatic if you're trying to grab people's attention in news articles and. And then, of course, this identifies which books get told, and and so and so. I just think that there is it's it's somewhat like uh, a parallel to bloodletting. Just because the medical profession for the longest time were uh, you know thought that the problem was in the blood, much of disease was in the blood, and so your job was to drain people of blood using literally leeches. I mean, it's so medieval. But that was dominant mindset. And if you'd lived at that time and read the media stories and the books at that time, that's what you'd have uh, been taught. And, and that doesn't, that yeah. none of all of that, those articles or books or stories or the medical professors, professionals of the time, none of that would have made it true. None of that made bloodletting right. It just meant that that was the narrative everyone was learning from, and so similarly, we have this very outdated paradigm, this outdated narrative about what leads to, uh, you know, superb performance, uh, superb achievement, and and lots of what's in that narrative is just wrong. And I don't know how else to say it, but that, and we've known for at least the last twenty years, uh, in peak performance in, in athletic. Uh, performance. that there 's also there 's all sorts of smart ways about how to how to help people operate at that level and it, it doesn 't look like no pain no gain as we grew up hearing about uh, that's that 's just you know no pain no gain is just a great example of uh, of, of performance bloodletting uh, actually uh, what you what you want is to is to find a, a, a pace that you can sustain so that you don 't train, for example, in boom and bust cycles. You, you don't want to be pushing yourself to such a limit that you're aching and sore and don't go and work out for days or weeks or you just give up for a while. It's too much. You want slow and small and steady and simple, and get better bit by bit. So that eventually leads to, you know, your own breakthroughs. Um, yeah. But, of course, uh, you know, so I think that that's something that's helpful to remember. Uh, A lot of these caricatures in 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 the media, if you go back and double click on their story, it's very different. Thomas Edison is the kind of part of part of the quintessential uh, American um, archetype of what it is to be successful and what it takes. Uh, But if you go back and I mean, I remember 20 plus years ago uh, going to the home he lived in in Florida next to. Uh, Ford had built a house and he, they both built houses next to each other so that they could spend time together. Uh, and among other things, uh, in the studio where, uh, where Edison worked on, you know, the, the famous light bulb, uh, there's a, there's a bed right there. He would take naps in that, in, in the bed, in the room where that was done. So he would work and he would sleep. And then when he had ideas, he'd wake up and work and go back to sleep. And he, he's, he, he's sleeping constantly. He, he didn't believe, for example, in straining the body. Uh, he, he, he himself actually was quite extreme this way. He wouldn't run even. He just thought, yeah, your body's just there to kind of get your brain around. And so he wasn't draining himself to exhaustion in some extreme fashion in the way that maybe the, the, the narrative would be. Uh, so we've got to go past those surface uh, and outdated narratives to find what really works.
0: Hmm. You, so one of the things I think I, I've always loved about your books is that you seem to frame them in these very clearly defined mental models in which I could literally summarize your book, you know, by reading out the seven sort of key headlines from each one. And I think that that's why I loved essentialism so much because it was just like, oh, wow. So this is just a personal question of morbid curiosity. like, How do you develop these sort of mental models and frameworks that end up becoming the content? And then we'll get into, you know, the the sort of what I literally have written down is sort of the seven parts of effortless action
2: um
1: yeah I mean I I think it's a nice question I I think a lot about them uh, that's for a start I'm I'm drawn uh in for reasons I can't quite explain um to clarity you know I I, I care about clarity and I um and I seek it in conversation and i seek it in the world around me and i don't feel fully satisfied until i've sort of wrestled down and found got to the other side of complexity and gone okay that's what it is and i can name it i feel satisfied in being able to name a phenomenon and 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 by naming a phenomenon i i also mean being able to identify clearly from what to what you know, that's that's important. There's, there's many books that write about what to do, but they aren't as good at, at clearly delineating what not to do. And it's in the what not to do column that we actually need to, like that's where we as a reader can say, oh, yeah, well, guilty of that, guilty of that, guilty <laughs> of that, yeah. That's where my world yeah. is, you know, and, and mm. that's what you have to have that moment as a learner, as a reader, to be able to go, okay, got it. I'm now here. So what's now this book going to help me to get to from, and what got me here won't get me to there. What, 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 what's the gap? And so, and so, I mean, I'm working on a new book, and, and in that book I'm, I'm constantly thinking about this, about where are people now? What's their, you know, I know what I'm trying to teach them to do, but where are they? Um, yeah. if, I can't, if I can't state that, more clearly than they can, then they won't get pulled into this in the first place. Yeah, we're going yeah, to have to. Yeah,
0: you know, it's funny. I mean, you just gave me a I dozen ideas for know. revisions I plan to make to my audience article thinking about what it's like to, to be right at the beginning. Because I remember uh, a friend of mine, when we were doing a writing course on, in, you know, habits. You know, i had been doing this thousand word a day thing for six years. And I remember he was our copywriter. He said, dude, you have to realize these people aren't you. He said, this is second nature to you at this point.
1: Yes, and I think that that is another error when people write books because they, they start thinking about a subject. By the time they've written a book, and it doesn't just have to be books, but, but you asked me about books. And, and, and by the time they, they have anything like a manuscript done, they've thought about that subject a great deal more than the reader, or, or they may well have done. And and so again, the same errors can be made. You know, the the, the presumption of where, yeah, you know, well, you know, they must understand this thing or that thing, and, and they they don't because they're not thinking about that all the time. So so you have to sort of keep, which comes back to full circle to what we began to, talked about at the beginning. You have to you have to keep coming back to where are they, and that's mm-hmm. what that's what that first column is for. It's like where are people at. And, and that's actually, to me, that's where the subject gets exciting because you, you, because then, then you're talking about something real. You're not, then you're no longer talking about a concept of, uh, you know, just an idea that someone goes, well, do I think that's true or not? You you Mm -hmm. don't really want people sitting in an audience when you're teaching or reading a book going, do I think that's true? That's not really the optimal. That's fine, but it's not optimal. What you want is for somebody to, to go, oh, my goodness, that's me right now, and that is what I want. That's what you want somebody to say. Then, Not is it conceptually true. You do want, is that true for me right now? Oh, oh, yeah, I'm already in. Yes, this is true. I, I want to get, you know, better even. And in this next book, I want to be even better than I've been able to do it in the past, from this to this, and and. and, and Capture it just right. So let's do this. You know, as we
0: were talking about, we were kind of getting into a uh, framework. You know, I think we were talking about sort of mental models and, and clarity and how I think the thing that makes your book so easy to read is the fact that you really think about them, as you pointed out, uh, in terms of mental models. And you know, we're getting close to towards the end here. So, to me, I think what was so brilliant about this is you know, like, I guess not coincidentally the simplicity of it, but, um, you know, you kind of break this down into sort of, uh, you know, a couple of different actions, which are, you know, define, start, simplify, progress, progress, uh, pace and, uh, effortless results. And then, you know, you talk about learning and automating, which that's another big one for me, but, uh, Let's say, say, for example, somebody listening to this uh, is planning out their day. And hands down, the number one problem that I kept coming back to over and over again when we did surveys for our email list was everybody's like, "Oh, I'm you know dealing with information overload. Like I can't remember where the hell I put anything." But I think that you know, when you talk about define in particular, um, this is really something that struck me. You say that if you want to make something hard, indeed, truly impossible to complete, all you have to do is make the end goal as vague as possible. That's because you cannot, by definition, complete a project with a clearly defined endpoint. Uh, you know, you can tinker with it. Uh, you can and likely will abandon it. But to get to an important project, to get an important project done, it's absolutely necessary to define what done looks like. And so it made me think about some of the answers that came back in a survey data where people's answers for what they would do if they could accomplish anything were incredibly vague. Like I want to build a creative business that, you know, serves humanity. you know, like, great. You know, like that is so vague. I, there was some other one where, uh, you know, I, I don't remember the exact thing I said. Okay, well there are numerous businesses that could fall into the category you're talking about. You couldn't, you know, have an adult film studio and it would still be in this category that this person was speaking of. Mean. Uh. So let's just you know, talk about those through the lens of planning a day. I think that will be a really perfect way to, to sort of bring everything that we've talked about here full circle.
1: Yeah, look, I mean, the, the first thing I think somebody should do if they're right, trying to plan a day is to create a done for the day list. Um, we, we set ourselves up and as overachievers, one of the main reasons we feel dissatisfied by the end of the day is that we don't, we don't know what done looks like for that day. So we have an endless, almost literally infinite to-do list. It is typical for people that their to-do list gets longer by the end of the day than it is at the beginning. And so you lie down at night and you're just looking at the gap and all the things that haven't been done and feel discouraged by that. Well, it's an unwinnable game. So let's make it more winnable, more sustainable, uh, wiser by saying, what are the things I need to do today? But when I'm done with them, I can be done for the day. Now, I tend to think that the list is like a three to six item list, maybe three things professionally, three things personally. And these are the important things. You may do other things beyond this, but these are the things that that, that when you're done with them, no more sneaky work after that. It's okay to stand aside and to, to then move into recuperation. So that's like one thing to do. The next rule of thumb I think would be helpful for people is to say, make sure you organize your day in a way that you don't do more today than you can completely recuperate from by tomorrow. Mm -hmm. Because as soon as you get into anything like a lifestyle of using up more than you can recuperate from today – uh, then you then you're already moving quickly past your optimal state. You'll end up living, even if you've got used to it, a lifestyle of exhaustion, uh, where where your mental capacity is very clouded, your mind feels uh, feels foggy. You, you you start to resent other people's requests for your time and so on. Yeah, this is like when somebody you can't find your keys. You get an email from a client or a boss or something, and you just uh, resent, they seem to be complaining about something, and your daughter asks you to braid her hair, and you resent that too. And and then contrast that with, with if you implement even the two things I've just suggested, uh, you, you you stop the day, you eat a good meal, have a hot shower, get a good night's sleep, and then the next day you wake up, you're fully rested, you find your keys right where you left them. The email, you're like, oh, I know how to respond to this. This is no big deal. I know what they mean. You're able to respond to the, the, the needs of the people around you and, and welcome it. I mean, that's the difference. So, so if, I, if I could wrap that up and maybe a third specific thing, uh, I would just say that we have to take rest and relaxation and treat it like it's a responsibility. So that we, when we're crafting this ideal day, we are actually crafting activities for rest and recuperation. We don't just, you know, for a lot of overachievers, they don't know how to relax. They literally don't have that competency. They're far more adept at running a marathon than they are taking a nap. <laughs> And and so, and so when you're designing this day, you have to design like it's a responsibility, like it's, you know, like relaxation, it becomes a set of rituals that you build into your day and, and you do it not because you're lazy, of course, not because you don't want to achieve, but because you want to achieve at a pinnacle level for a very, very long time. You know, you want to perform well, even superbly for 50 years. Not not for five days, not for five months, not even for five years. You want to be able to perform decade after decade. In fact, and I think this is a good place to sort of uh, of end it in a sense because of this simple idea. You want to live life in crescendo where your greatest contribution always lies ahead of you, not behind you. And if you want to live like that, then you have to take, design your day to day, differently than you otherwise would. Yes, it's about contribution. Yes, it's about doing what really matters. And it means doing it in ways that are protecting the asset that is you and that has boundaries and that has place for designful for rest, recuperation, relaxing, so that you can keep on contributing and contributing for a very long time to the future. And, and that's really what, uh, certainly what I want and what I think uh most uh most achievement oriented people want once they recognize that as an option.
0: Yeah.
1: Wow. Um well
0: you know it's funny. This is one of the handful of times that I didn't end up like, you know, quoting multiple sections of your book, but I mean you just kind of packed this with so many nuggets that it was it's kind of funny. You summarized amazingly enough, you kind of effortlessly summarized your entire book. <laughs> so um, <laughs> well, well, I have, easy. So I have one final question, uh, you know, which I've asked you before. It's how we finish all of our interviews. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable?
1: What do I think it is that makes something unmistakable? Is that what you said? Yes. My answer for that today has to do with this idea of Utter and total uniqueness. And and it's really the idea that that the more we understand who we are, the more we understand who each other are, the more distinct each person becomes. And And that therefore, as you gain greater clarity in that uniqueness each person can become more and more of who they really are and less and less of who they really aren't. And so it's a, it's a complete opposite of FOMO of just trying to the fear of missing out, of being like everybody else of competing and comparing that, you know, trying to be, you know, be like and do like every other strategy, you become more and more uniquely you. And therefore, and, and, and you value the uniqueness in other people distinctly. And, and, and therefore every person, in this way, becomes unmistakable. Signature them, and and, and uh, that that's what I think. That's what I think it means to be unmistakable.
0: Amazing. Um, well, I can't thank you for uh, enough for taking the time to join us and uh, sharing your story, your wisdom, and insights with our listeners. And it's just so wonderful to have you back for a second time. Where can people find out more about uh, you, uh, the new book, and everything else you're up to?
1: Um, you know, I think, I think the easiest single thing people can do so they don't miss anything, I have a one-minute Wednesday newsletter. Uh, you can sign up for that at gregmcuhin.com. Uh, so literally, we just try to make each each week uh, week's letter, um, you know, you can read it in one minute, and it's our goal is to make it the most valuable minute you spend online each week. So it's just tight and essentialist and uh, and, and just enough to keep putting this into, you know, putting this into your life in an incremental way over time. That's probably the best single thing people could do. Amazing. And for everybody listening, we will wrap the show
0: with that. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Unmistakable Creative Podcast. While you were listening, were there any moments you found fascinating, inspiring, instructive, maybe even heartwarming? Can you think of anyone, a friend or a family member who would appreciate this moment? If so, take a second and share today's episode with that one person because good ideas and messages are meant to be shared. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your
3: travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen